Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Today, Nikki, we're going to talk about Revelation 9 and those really odd results that we find inside the fifth and the sixth trumpets. (laughs) There are locusts and there are horses, but they look odd and they have very strange jobs to do, kind of scary sounding ones. Yeah. But before we talk about them, I just want to say... If you ever wish to contact us, and we love getting your emails and hearing from you, you can email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Also, you can go to proclamationmagazine.com to sign up for our weekly e-magazine. And inside that magazine, you will find links to all of our online resources, including our YouTube channel. There's also a donate button there. You can donate to Life Assurance Ministries. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. And finally, wherever you listen to podcasts, like and subscribe to this one if you haven't. And if you like it, we urge you to write a five-star review for us because your likes, your subscriptions, and your reviews do help the spread of this podcast. And now, Nikki, I have a question for you. Did you ever hear about angels being bound at the Euphrates when you were an Adventist, or about plagues of locusts like horse scorpions and horses bringing plagues of sulfur and snake bites to people on earth? Did you ever hear about that when you were an Adventist? No, I have no memory of hearing about that as an Adventist. (laughs) Did you? I heard about them, but I had absolutely no idea what they meant, really. And I figured they were symbolic of some other kind of event, because that was sort of how we were taught. Oh, yeah. I would have assumed that. I would have assumed that it meant something that I knew nothing about. Some historical moment. Yes. Yeah. And so, what did you think? Did you think any of these things had any relationship to you? You know, in general, I thought anything bad that happened in Revelation was coming for me if I was going to be alive at that time, that I had to escape it. I mean, full-blown secular Armageddon thought processes. (laughs) So, so, I mean, I think if I had read about the locusts, I would have wondered how I could possibly escape that sting. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because somewhere along the line, I did read about them and I did read about the horses, but you know, I assumed they meant something, something that was completely different, like helicopters or airplanes or Mm -hmm. armies or tanks. I had no ability to read the words and see anything related to the words. Yeah. You know what? I did hear that kind of talk around the dinner table, the helicopters Mm -hmm. and the airplanes and the nukes and the, all of that sort of thing. I, I just knew there was no way I was ever going to be smart enough to go from locusts to nuclear weapons. (laughs) I couldn't do it. Uh So I just decided better minds than mine knew revelation. And I just had to keep the 10 commandments (laughs) and, you know, figure out how to survive the wilderness, but I knew I wouldn't. Right. Those edible plants would not be enough to sustain me. I did not put enough time into Pathfinders to ever stand (laughs) a chance against nature. Yeah. Yeah. It's all very scary and very confusing. And somehow it was all related to history and the future and the present was never part of the deal. And I just had to ignore it. What we're going to look at today is the sounding of the fifth and the sixth trumpets. Now, let's just review a little bit. The sixth chapter of Revelation 
had the lamb, who's Jesus, obviously, opening the seals on the scroll. He was the only one found worthy to open the scroll because his blood had purchased earth and he had the right to the title deed to the earth. And he is the one who is going to judge the earth. As we looked at a couple of different times, Jesus himself said, the father judges no one, all judgment is given to the son. And that is found in John 5. In Revelation 6, we see Jesus beginning to open that scroll by opening up the seals, and we see judgment starting to come out on the earth. And then, when we got to the end of chapter 6, we saw the wicked people crying for the rocks to fall on them, crying to hide them and protect them from the wrath of the Lamb, and we have to believe that they mean what they say. It is the wrath of the Lamb because the Lamb is the one given the power to judge because He shed His blood for us. And then in chapter 7, we have an interlude. And chapter 7 is a chapter that is sometimes overlooked because, well, you know, it's a little hard to explain when you have certain worldviews like our particular brand of Adventism did. Who are the 144,000? Who is that innumerable multitude? Well, we saw in chapter 7, these are the people who are going to be able to withstand the wrath. The wrath of the Lamb is not coming for them. And we saw that the 144,000 were from the 12 tribes of Israel, Jews who have been sealed with the seal of God. The unnumbered multitude is from the nations. They're from every tribe and tongue and nation. And John is told that these are the ones who have come out of the Great Tribulation. Then we came to chapter 8, where we had the seventh seal on that scroll that the Lamb was opening. And when that seventh seal is opened, what it yielded was, whoa, seven trumpets. (laughs) So now we're into the seven trumpets. And today we're going to look at the blowing of the fifth and the sixth trumpets. And it's interesting that so many verses are dedicated to these two trumpets. And, you know, one might say, why? Because we didn't have nearly that many verses dedicated to the first four trumpets. But these have a unique characteristic. They're targeted at a unique target. We're going to hear details about them that I didn't understand as an Adventist. And it's really an interesting chapter as it starts to unfold, if we believe the words to mean what the words say. So, why don't we start by reading the first part of the chapter, which is the description of the fifth trumpet and what happens when that fifth trumpet is blown. So, we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 11. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. 
On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, and his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. And there is that fifth trumpet. What a horrifying picture John sees. Now, I think it's interesting to remember that right before verse 1 of chapter 9, we had an eagle flying in heaven, the last verse of chapter 8. And this eagle, and the Greek word behind eagle is simply a word meaning bird of prey. It is sometimes interpreted vulture. But whatever it is, it is a bird of prey, very strong, very capable of violence, capable of killing, capable of strength. And it's a symbol that's often used in the Old Testament. And this bird of prey calls out, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. It's an interesting call. You remember what the angels and the four living creatures and the 24 elders would cry out in the throne room of heaven? Holy, holy, holy. This is the opposite. This is a declaration of dread and of judgment that is coming. This is not worship directly to God. This is a declaration of His judgment, which is about to fall on unbelievers on the earth, which is a really sad thing to think about, actually. This bird is declaring what's going to happen. And then in the passage you read, Nikki, we see the sounding of the fifth trumpet, and we, we discover the description of that first woe. The second woe will be the sixth trumpet, and the third woe is yet to come. So what we're going to look at is a description of a really horrifying judgment that's going to fall on the people on the earth. And that's new for my thinking. These judgments are falling on people who don't believe. That is new. This is not about the saved having to keep themselves pure and holy and in the love of God during the tribulation like we were taught as Adventists. We were taught we would have to be, if we made it through the investigative judgment, we would have to stand without a mediator in the time of trouble. And this is saying something completely different. These troubles are not coming on believers. They're coming on those who don't believe. So, you know, I like to listen to Gary Inreg in his word search teaching on the book of Revelation. And this chapter is covered in episode number 24. And as he was preparing to move through these verses, he made a point that I had to copy down because in light of what we walked through last week, where we heard Randy Roberts claiming that this wrath is not from God and that Satan is trying to deceive people to think this is from the lamb. Well, this is what Gary said. Just to anticipate what's coming on here, what the fifth and sixth trumpets tell us is that as the end draws near, in God's sovereign intention, he's going to let the demons loose. Mm -hmm. That is going to be the punishment. Idolaters are worshiping demons. That's what verse 20 is going to tell us. And the demons themselves have such a perverted nature that they're going to destroy the people that are loyal to them. 
The worst thing that can happen to people who worship demons is to be the targets of their activity because they are so hateful of everything created by God. And human beings bear the image of God even when they are disbelieving in Him. It was just an interesting perspective, one that I absolutely love. We know God is sovereign over everything, even the scary things. God is sovereign over all things. He's in control of all things. These judgments are being poured out by Him, and they're being poured out on unbelievers. And it is demonic activity that bears out in the text. And it's interesting to see it this way, Nikki, because... In Adventism, we were basically taught that God, in his, quote, divine passive, stands back and lets Satan reveal his true nature so that all will see who he is and know that he's a deceiver and then turn and worship God. But that's not what the Bible is describing. It's describing a sovereign God who is sovereign even over the demons, All through this chapter, we see God deciding when bound demons are to be released and turned loose to do what He tells them to do. He uses the demons to pour out His judgment. Just like in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk heard God telling him he was going to send the Babylonians to to punish apostate Israel. But then he said, the Babylonians would be punished for what they did to his people. He is sovereign over unbelievers. He is sovereign over evil. Evil is his monkey. Evil is not an equal force out there in the universe trying to battle for our souls. No, he is part of creation, a fallen part of creation, and he is not part of creation that Jesus came to redeem, because the book of Hebrews tells us he didn't come for the sake of angels. He came for the sake of the descendants of Abraham. So, God is sovereign over these evil angels, and they have to do only what he gives them permission to do, and they have to do it when he tells them to do it. It's interesting how in the first trumpets, he used creation to punish the inhabitants of the earth. In Romans 1, we read that people worship the creation rather than the creator. Now we're moving even closer to the heart of this rebellion, and he's using the very demons they worship in false religion to punish them. And I think that should give people a great pause, because if we worship anything other than God, we're worshiping an idol. Even if we're worshiping something we read in some pages of Scripture, for example, I speak as a former Adventist, the Sabbath, the Seventh-day Sabbath, is not part of our salvation. It is not the mark of those who are being saved. It is Jesus alone that we trust and who saves us. The Sabbath doesn't even play a role in our behavior when we know the Lord. And if we are hanging on to that as a, what if it's important, just what if I have to hold on to it to hedge my bets, then we are carrying along an idol. And that's really very terrifying because those idols have demonic powers when they're not what God has asked us to do. And those demonic powers turn on the people who hold on to them. So, I I just want to read a very short quotation that I read in J. Vernon McGee's commentary on this chapter. And this comes because, as a former Adventist, I know that this chapter was never taught to me as possibly meaning what it says. 
we'll talk about that as we go through the chapter, Nikki. But Adventism teaches that all of these trumpet judgments have to do with historical events in the past before we ever lived. None of that can be supported by the words of the text. And so I want to read this little quote from McGee because it kind of pulls me forward into the present, into the reality, into trusting again the words. Here's what he said. The language used in this section is admittedly the most difficult of interpretation. But this does not preclude our policy of following the literal lines, even when the figures adopted are the most vivid and wild. If another interpretation is proper, John will furnish us the key. That's great. Isn't that wonderful? So verse one reads, and the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. So we don't have to go any further than verse one to see both God's sovereignty and the fact that he uses evil angels for his purposes. John saw a star fallen from heaven. The word there indicates that this star was already fallen. Yeah. And this star is a personal being. We see star in scripture all over the place, and it can mean different things. Context tells us what it means. Yes. And the context here says, he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Well, there's a key. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's a key that has that pit all locked up. And we read already that Jesus has been given the keys to Hades and death. Yes. And so the only way this fallen angel could possibly be given this key is if our omnipotent God chose to give him a job. Yes, our omnipotent God, Jesus. Yes. (laughs) Who has those keys? So he's given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit and... This bottomless pit we've read about in other parts of scripture, haven't yes, we? This, that is fascinating. Isn't this the abyss that the the demoniac, he had all those demons, they were named Legion, mm-hmm. and Jesus was going to cast them out and they said, are you going to throw us in to the abyss? And they begged him not to. That's fascinating to I me. Know. This word also occurs six times in the book of Revelation. And Gary said that it refers to a temporary place of confinement for demonic beings, or unbelievers. And we do read in Revelation 20 that Satan's going to be bound and placed in this pit. So this this abyss, this pit, it's not introduced to us here. No, there's other places. You know, it's also interesting to me that in 2 Peter 2 verse 4, Peter writes this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, Mm -hmm. and the sentence goes on. But I just quote that part because it refers to this pit of darkness where demons are kept for judgment. And being kept for judgment means that they're being kept there until the day that God throws them, like we see at the end of Revelation 20, into the lake of fire where they will be judged. It's interesting that he has some demons confined there, but not all of them. It, I agree. This is all going to be very interesting to understand later. And we're not explained. Mm-mm. It's just not told to us exactly how we're to understand that. But here's the thing. The words mean what the words say. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say context, people. <laughs> Here we are again. Context. We have a fallen star who is clearly personal. Mm-hmm. In the last chapter, 
we had a cosmic star falling that was called Wormwood that poisoned the fresh waters. But the context was clear that that was a cosmic object. The context here is clear that this star is already fallen. We already know from Isaiah 14, 12, where Isaiah sees Lucifer apparently fallen from heaven and says, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to earth. You have weakened the nations. And then in Luke 10, 18, Jesus said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So we know that there is precedent to understand that there are fallen angels that have been cast down. And this clearly seems to be one of those because he's a sentient being. He can take the key. He can open the pit. He can respond to the limitations that God is putting on him. And this isn't the only time that we see a star referred to as a sentient being. In the beginning of the book of Revelation, Jesus talks about the stars being the angels to the churches. That's right. And even Jesus is called the morning star. That's right. And says he'll give believers the morning star. How interesting and wonderful is that? And I believe in Daniel, Daniel's told that God's people will shine like stars in the last days. Isn't that wonderful? Mm -hmm. So context tells us that this is likely a demon, probably not Satan himself, just given the context, but a demonic being, and he's going to take the key of the bottomless pit from the one who gives it to him, which is our Lord Jesus. So, we'll move on to verses 2 and 3, where the angel actually opens the bottomless pit, and what comes up? There's smoke. There's smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and it darkens the air. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's not something that's going to be missed. No. People will see this. Because it even says the sun is darkened, and the air. I mean, so, yeah. This is something people will see. It won't just be a tiny little thing that happens here and there. And then out of that smoke come the locusts. Oh, talk about the locusts, Nikki. They're weird. (laughs) (laughs) So the locusts are not like the locusts we know. Right. They're clearly demonic. Yes. They've been in the abyss. They've been locked up by God, and now they're unlocked and unleashed on the earth. And they are able to take orders, yes, which is interesting. So they're given power, which there again, the word given, we've got God's sovereignty on display. Absolutely. They were given power, like the power of scorpions, and they were told not to harm the grass or the green plants or the tree. And remember in the previous trumpets, they were only to harm the grass and the plants and not the people. But now we're redirecting here. Yeah. And they're told not to. Only the people who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. What? So you mean I'm not going to be out there hoping I've passed the judgment and experiencing all this torment without knowing? And being required to remain faithful in the middle of stinging scorpions? No. mm Oh, this is so different from what I had thought. It's very, very different. So we have intelligent beings who can understand the restrictions they're to follow and they obey them. Yeah. That tells you that God is sovereign. Yeah. The evil angels are not given total freedom to run amok and do their worst. They can only do what God tells them to do. And the amazing news, no matter what you think about the 144,000... The 144,000 are sealed and protected both from the judgments on the systems of nature and from the judgments given by the demonic 
locusts. That's true. They're safe. Yeah, that's amazing. The seal of God, as we talked about back in chapter 7, protects us. Mm -hmm. Or whoever receives it, His seal protects all of us who receive it. And wherever He takes us, we're safe. So what's really interesting is they have a time constraint. What is it? They're allowed to torment the unbelievers for five months. They're not allowed to kill them, but they can torment them for five months. And, you know, people speculate, what does that mean? Are they constantly tormenting them for a duration of five months? Or does one sting torment them for five months? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. We just know that five months is a time constraint. And their torment is like the torment of a scorpion. And this part is really fascinating. People will seek death. They will long for death. They will not find it. And death will flee from them. So they're going to be in so much torment and so much suffering that they're going to long to die. And they will not be able to. Which suggests to me that even suicide will be kept from them in some way, apparently. Yeah, well, in Precept Austin, they said that the words there for not, they will not find it, are a double negative. Interesting. And they emphasize the impossibility of death. Oh, can you imagine? I'm just very thankful that the saved do not have to worry about enduring this particular torture. Oh, yeah. And doesn't it just ignite a a need to pray for those you know who aren't saved? Yes. It suddenly becomes very personal and emotional. It does. And it goes on in verse 7 to talk about the look of these locusts, besides the fact that they have, you know, tails like scorpions with a sting in them. It says that they have the appearance of horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold. I I find it interesting that John is not using straight metaphor. He's using similes. He, Mm -hmm. He clearly doesn't know exactly how to describe this, and he's doing the best he can. Crowns like gold. He apparently doesn't really believe they're crowns of gold. But they look gold. (laughs) I think of fool's gold, you know. But these creatures have this appearance, and John seems to be unable to know even how to describe them. Mm -hmm. And he's doing the best he can with images that come close, that approximate what he's seeing. And their faces were like the faces of men. Well, that almost suggests ascensions right there, doesn't it? Yeah. Like they see, they know, they are aware. They're mm. not just mindless insects, although they appear to be locusts. So they have hair like the hair of women, teeth like the teeth of lions. Well, what does that suggest? They're there to devour. It sure sounds like it. And the hair like women, I have no idea what to do with that. No, neither. <laughs> Long and tenny, whatever, I don't know. But they're horrifying. Mm-hmm. And this doesn't mean they're big. Yeah, it doesn't have to mean that. No, they can be tiny little locust-shaped <laughs> insects, but they are devastating. They devastate the unbelieving world. And, you know, even if they are small, we're not going to miss them because... Their wings sound like many chariots. They're loud. So think about the assault on the senses. We have obvious pain Mm -hmm. from the stinging. We have a noise problem with the sound like chariots. And we have five months of this, Mm. of torment. So the torment 
includes the sound, it includes the pain, it includes the presence of these things everywhere, the inability to get away from them, and their horrifying appearance and their apparent consciousness, their apparent ability to know what they're doing. And for five months to be subjected to that, to long for death and to be unable to die. It's interesting that it says five months. Precept Austin pointed out that the judgment of the flood lasted. It prevailed for the same period of time. It was 150 days. Wow. That's fascinating. For that length of time, the unbelievers will endure this incredible torture. And then we have one more little hint about them down in verse 11. It says, they have as king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. Now, those two words both mean either destroyer or destruction. Now, what's interesting here is that this is another hint that these locusts are more than just insects. Proverbs 30 verse 27, interestingly enough, has a comment about this. It says, the locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. And here we have instruments of torture, which are like locusts, and they have a king. And the king is the angel who's in charge of the abyss, and his name is Destroyer. There is such a demonic thumbprint on all of this, and the demons are going to turn on the unbelievers who have worshipped and championed them. So now, verse 12 tells us that the first woe is past. Two woes are still coming. And now in the rest of this chapter, we're going to look at that second woe. So beginning in verse 13, it says, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horse in my vision, and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire, and of sapphire, and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed, by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails." For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So we have the sounding of the sixth trumpet. And what happens? Well, first of all, it's interesting. He hears a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. And which is that? We had the altar of sacrifice outside the temple, and we have the altar of incense inside in front of the most holy place. And apparently, this voice is coming from the altar of incense. And it's interesting that the voice appears to be the voice of God, because he's giving a command again to these fallen angels. 
but it's also related to the prayers of the people. So there is a connection there with the altar and with the voice, but the command is so interesting and kind of cryptic. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Now, it's interesting right up front to notice that the plague of locusts was commanded not to kill. Mm -hmm. Five months of torture, but no killing, just great persecution. And still no one repented. And so now these angels are commanded to kill a third of the people. But first we need to talk about this Euphrates connection. What's going on with that? What's going on with these angels bound at the Euphrates? What can we know about them? Well, the fact that the angels are bound indicates that these also are fallen angels. That's true. These fallen angels are standing at the river Euphrates, and the question becomes, why Euphrates? Mm -hmm. No one really knows for sure, but there are a lot of reasons to believe it has to do with this being the area from which the enemies of Israel usually came in. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians came in by way of the Euphrates. Yes, and I have a really interesting little quote from J. Vernon McGee's commentary here that I'd just like to read at this point. He says, why were they bound at this particular location at the Euphrates River? Though this is rather difficult to explain, the prominence of this area in Scripture cannot be overlooked. The Garden of Eden was somewhere in this section. Remember, the Euphrates was one of the four rivers that flowed out of Eden. This is where man began. The first murder was committed here. The first war was fought here. Here was where the flood began and spread over the earth. Here is where the Tower of Babel was erected. To this area were brought the Israelites of the Babylonian captivity. Babylon was the fountainhead of idolatry, and here is the final surge of sin on the earth during the Great Tribulation period. The Euphrates actually marks the division between east and west. Zechariah locates Babylon as the last stand of false religion in Zechariah 5, and this is where Satan's last stand will take place. So even though we can't explain exactly what is significant about Euphrates, we can see that historically, in the history of mankind, many of the major events in the history of mankind's creation, judgments from God, and final judgments happened at this area, which is near Babylon, which is near the plain of Shinar, where the Tower of Babel was built, which is where the town, the city of Babylon was. So, whatever this might mean, we can see that it has a connection, clear back to Genesis, with evil, with God's judgment, and with um, the enemies of Israel coming in by the river Euphrates. It's interesting that these angels had been prepared for this moment. They knew what they were to do. They knew their job. All they needed was to be unbound. And once they were, there's this innumerable number of mounted troops. I mean, I guess it's kind of numbered. It says that it was twice 10,000 times 10,000, which would be 200 million. Mm -hmm. Gary mentioned that he thinks this number is meant to display an innumerable horde And on Precept Austin, they said that the language here 
is Dismyriad's Myriadon. I probably said that wrong, but it's two myriads of myriads, an essentially countless number. This is a similar phrase to that found in Revelation 5.11 to describe the countless angelic host. So these four angels are commanding this innumerable army. And it's at God's time. And what I find interesting about this is that, that there is a very specific hour, day, month, and year that God has already determined when this will happen. So this is not random, depending on what humans do or what demons do. This is a moment in history where this will happen. And once again, God is commanding the release of an innumerable horde of demons to torture and to kill now unbelievers on earth who don't trust Jesus. I have one more quote from J. Vernon McGee here. I found this actually to be really helpful, particularly since I'm coming from an Adventist background, and I'm approaching this with a whole new hermeneutic that I didn't know as an Adventist. This is what he says about this passage. These creatures from the underworld are unnatural. They're probably demons or demon-controlled. We are given a literal description of them. In his book on Revelation, William R. Newell makes this very timely observation. Believe, and you scarcely need any comment. The problem with men who come to Revelation and say that it is difficult to understand and impossible to interpret is that they do not believe it. If you simply believe it and read it, it is very clear. Hellish forces will be at work during this period. That seems to be all we need to know. Exactly. We are not given all the details of how this will look or why or what will happen around us, but we're told enough so that when it happens, we'll recognize it. And there is no reason to think that when these events happen, they will not look in the way John has described them. Remember the plagues of Israel. Mm -hmm. There were locusts. There were flies. There was darkness. There was water to blood. There were frogs. There were frogs. (laughs) (laughs) And when God says these things will happen, they will happen. And it just is the most logical way to read this passage. To try to back up and reassign a meaning because it doesn't make sense to us is really presumptuous on our part. It's very arbitrary. Yeah. It's interesting that the writers are not described in great detail here. The horses are. Mm -hmm. And John does not use similitude. These are horses, yet they're not like horses we know. Yeah. In Precept to Austin, one commentator wrote, Note that when John uses simile, what he describes is approximately true to the vision that he is being shown. It is the closest thing he's familiar with to compare that which he sees. This precludes the notions of some that John was describing futuristic military weaponry (laughs) with which he had no familiarity. There's no reason, there's no indication in the text that gives us permission to ascribe what he's describing to stuff that we know and understand today in an attempt to get at this information. You mean like helicopters and airplanes (laughs) and tanks? Exactly. It was interesting to me that when Gary Enrig was talking through this chapter, he said the idea that the locusts or that any of these creatures were helicopters was invented by Hal Lindsey in his late great planet Earth. I didn't know that. 
And I thought that was interesting. That is interesting because I heard that kind of stuff inside Adventism. I did too. Did Adventists read that book? Um, Well, you know what? I did as an Adventist. Did you? Yeah, I thought it was a little bit like sci-fi. Okay. And it was interesting, but um, I don't know how many Adventists actually read it. I suspect that if I did, others did. Well, it's interesting that these horses have fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. And then in the very next verse, those three things are described as plagues. So there are demonic forces that are bringing plagues, natural forces, on humanity. Yeah, It says that the three plagues killed a third of mankind, and it was by fire and smoke and sulfur which came out of their mouths. And those things sound like Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. The fire and brimstone that rained on Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed them. And these are being called plagues. So apparently it's not as destructive in the full sense of Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's killing people. The The focus is people here. Yeah. And it also says the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. And it doesn't say what, it doesn't say they bite or sting, but it implies that that is the case. But he clearly suggests that fire and brimstone and smoke are predominant plagues that will kill people, which is really horrifying. It is horrifying, and it takes me back to the end of chapter 6, where we see a description of the people, of unbelievers at the end of this time, where God pours His wrath out on earth, and they say to the rocks and to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of Him who sits on the throne and of the Lamb. They know that what they're encountering is supernatural, which is another reason to believe that what John is describing is clearly supernatural to the people who are alive at the time that they walk through this. Yeah, People have said in, in the previous chapter that the trees are leaders and the grass are people. That's not in the text. No, it's and not. And there's no reason to see it that way. And there's no reason to believe that the natural course of human history would cause unbelievers to see God's wrath. That's right. They wouldn't acknowledge him that way. That's a really great point. I think it's also interesting to remember that the plagues in Egypt hardened Pharaoh's heart and did not soften it. And even after he relented after the death of his son on that 10th plague, he allowed Israel to leave, but he hardened right up and chased them through the Red Sea. He didn't give up. And Romans 9 refers to that. And it's it's really interesting that the Bible almost equal numbers of times says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and that God hardened his heart. So that this is reflective of the basic nature of Pharaoh's heart. He had reason to see and to trust and to fear God and to do what God commanded him. But he didn't. He hardened his heart. This is actually showing us the depth of human depravity. We're born dead in sin, and we will do evil if we do not repent, and it requires God's intervention, the Spirit of God working on our hearts to cause us to repent. Remember, Jesus even said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. We're dependent upon the grace of God to break our rebellion against him. And as he deals through these plagues with increasingly hardened people, he even uses Satan to accomplish his purposes. Demonic powers are real. 
but God is greater. And I really loved this sentence that our Pastor Gary said when he was talking through this. He said, some people are demon-obsessed rather than God-confident. They feel the need to address the demons, to, to rebuke the demons, to cast them out, to tell people to give up their demons and turn to God. But instead, our focus is to be God-confident we can know that He is calling His own. We can know that there's power in His living Word. We can do what He's asked us to do, witness for Him. Our focus is not the demons. Our focus is God, and He saves us from the demons. It's really interesting to me to think about these trumpet plagues in reference to Adventism. You know, Nikki, I did not remember how I was taught about this. I just knew I wasn't taught about it in any kind of a normal reading because it was all confusion to me. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to me to hear our Pastor Gary say that he had actually gone online to look up and see what Adventists believed. So I went to the source he said he found, which was Ministry Magazine. And then I talked to Richard about it, who did remember being taught by very conservative Adventist Bible teachers about these plagues. Now, what's really interesting to me is that Adventism sees all of these plagues as being historical events, but there's no agreement within Adventism about which events they represent. You talk about your confusing religion. They're not willing to see these as describing something real, but they have to find, based on Ellen White's confusing church history, which is inaccurate in the Great Controversy. They have to find ways to explain it. Now, there is a chart in the the January 2012 issue of Ministry Magazine. There's a chart showing seven different theologians from the Adventist organization and how they've described all of these trumpets. And the first one is Uriah Smith from the founding of Adventism, and then it goes kind of down through the history of Adventism. And the seven theologians that they name, the Adventist theologians are Uriah Smith, E. Thiel, R. Naden, C. M. Maxwell, I believe that's Mervyn Maxwell, W. Shea, John Pauline and Hans LaRundell, and then a man named A. Trier. Now, each one of these schools of thought has a different way of interpreting these judgments, all of them from the the different trumpets. Now, because we're looking at trumpets five and six, we're just going to look at the fifth and sixth trumpet in this chart. But what's so interesting to me is that we, we look at the trumpet of the locusts, and Uriah Smith said that describes the rise of Islam. And then we go on down the line, and we have Naden saying that the fifth trumpet describes Satan's attack on the Reformation by the Counter-Reformation. And then we have C. Mervyn Maxwell saying it's the rise and progress of Islam. And then we have Shay and Pauline saying something else. Shay says it's the Crusades during the Middle Ages, and Pauline and La Rondelle say it's the reign of secular atheism. And then finally, A. Trier says it's the rise of Islam against apostate Christianity. Now, right there, all of these viewpoints of this one particular trumpet, they don't agree. And what relevance do they have at all to the plague of locusts that is not going to kill any human but is going to 
persecute the humans. If you look at it, you look at these events, the Ottoman Empire, Satan's attack on the Reformation, the rise and progress of Islam, the Crusades. Did people die during these events? Yeah. Absolutely. Thousands of people died. And yet the locust plague is not allowed to kill any humans. And it only lasts five months. And it only lasts five months. People can say, oh, yes, but this is all symbolic. Well, how do you know? And it's clear that even within a religious movement, some of their brightest theological minds cannot agree. So that should tell you right there. There's something wrong with the hermeneutic Adventists are using, and there's something wrong with the way they see these plagues. Adventism confused us about these things and made it almost impossible to read these words so that they made sense. I remember as an Adventist when I read these, I would sit there and think, well, what could that be? Maybe the locusts are tanks, or maybe, you know, I was trying to figure out a meaning. Well, we needed to know what we were going to be running from. (laughs) (laughs) Hiding in the rocks. And clearly, that's not even on scene here. This isn't even in view. In the commentary, this article in Ministry Magazine was written by Angel Rodriguez, who is the former chairman of the Adventists' Biblical Research Institute. He says this, The trumpets are not God's final eschatological judgments upon impenitent sinners, but judgments taking place within the flow of history. Therefore, we should clearly distinguish between the purpose of the trumpets and that of the seven plagues in Revelation 16. The plagues will occur at a specific historical moment that will quickly lead to the parousia. With respect to a full or final interpretation of the trumpets, our journey has not yet reached its intended destination. And I want to say, how do you know? Where do you get that authority? And I have to say, Angel Rodriguez is looking at the theological legacy of founding Adventists clear up through modern theologians who are teaching today. In fact, Nikki, that view of John Pauline and La Rundell that I was reading from that's included in this chart, John Pauline is currently on the faculty at Loma Linda University, and along with Randy Roberts' series through Revelation, which is going on as we record these podcasts, John Pauline is teaching an afternoon class on the nature of the remnant of Revelation. He is still teaching. He is still teaching, and he is not teaching a classic Adventist viewpoint. He's also not teaching any kind of a Christian viewpoint. What is he saying? Well, he hasn't come to his conclusion, but I have read his stuff before, and he is saying that there is a three-pronged remnant, and that it is surprising, it is international, it is just not what you expect, and In the things I have read that he has written previously and that he has presented previously, he actually says that the remnant comes from three traditions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So, you know, that is not a typical Adventist viewpoint. It certainly wasn't Uriah Smith's idea. That's unbelievable. They treat the Bible like a treasure map. Exactly. Here a little, there a little, and then they come up with their own picture. Yeah. It's a mental playground. It's a puzzle to be figured out. Which is making an idol of their own intellect. Absolutely true. And I'm just looking at this and thinking, 
I don't know how these locusts can work. I don't know how these horses can work. But Nikki, it is so much easier to read what the words say and to believe what I see. And the fact that Jesus is the word that was given to us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God spoke and commanded and it was done. When we believe we become new creations, that is a word like the creation of the world. That is a brand new entity. 2 Corinthians 5.17. The fact that Jesus, our Lord, our eternal God, speaks and brings into existence what has never existed before, that alone should give us confidence that the words he gives us in Revelation are to be believed, even if we don't understand how it can be. Nikki, who can explain the new birth? Who can explain that Jesus took our imputed sin to the cross and died and it endured the wrath of God we were supposed to endure and died and rose from death because his sacrifice was sufficient. There is no way to explain that. There is no way to understand that except to say, this is a miracle of God. This is God revealing his grace, his mercy, his compassion on us. And our proper response to this is to believe. And when I see that this is the revelation of our Lord Jesus that he gave to John, I have to believe it. Mm-hmm. I can't explain it. I don't know how it will be, but I can tell you that reading these plagues of locusts and horses and the torture for five months and the killing a third of the earth, that's horrifying, but it's much easier to believe and to understand than these crazy Adventist ideas, which have no basis in anything. You can't even tie the language into these things. No, it's a club of gurus. You have to have the right one. You've got to figure out the right one. Who knows what they're talking about and follow the right guy. And if you disagree with the person next to you in the Adventist pew, it's all okay because your worldview is still the same. Yeah. You still believe that man is just physical. Mm -hmm. You still believe that Jesus had no advantage. We don't. You still believe that sin is somehow inherited in our gene pool and salvation is by turning aside from our sins of breaking the law and letting Jesus pour power onto us because he showed us how to endure the punishment of death. And because he did that and he kept the law perfectly, he can help us do it too. That's not the gospel. What we see here is what God is going to do at a time in earth's history when people have refused to believe. And this is like the plagues of Egypt. This is his last revelation of his supreme power. He is stronger than all of their machinations. He is stronger than the demonic powers with whom they are probably cooperating. He is sovereign. And just like in the plagues of Egypt, time and again, the people are given opportunity to repent and they don't. All the way up to the end of this chapter, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons. And you know what? That includes the Seventh-day Sabbath. I appreciated how Gary described idolatry in our day because we don't typically, it's out there, but we don't typically in America see people bowing down to different idols. But he said, idolatry in our world takes a very different form than it took in the first century world. An idol is anything that we depend upon for significance in the place of God and anything that we rely upon for help in the place of God. 
those kind of idols are all around us. And who was it that said our heart is an idol factory? I mean, if you can't find your idol, you can create one. It doesn't have to be something outside of yourself. And the Sabbath is a created thing. It's time. It's not eternal. We can't carry the Sabbath along as an evidence that we are worthy to be saved. That will never help. And the Godhead of the Great Controversy, this is a created idol as well. Absolutely. It's a false Jesus who could have failed. It's a false Jesus who showed us how to keep the law like he did, because if he could do it, so can we, because he has no advantage, we don't. That's not the God of Scripture. The God of Scripture is the immortal, almighty God who took on human flesh and who could not sin in some way we can't explain because he is God. He kept the law because he was sinless. He wasn't sinless because he kept the law. He died because he could take our sin, and he suffered the wrath of God, not just for one man, not just a representative death. He took the wrath of God for all of us who believe. I just want to implore anybody hearing this podcast, if you haven't trusted the God of Scripture who sent His Son, who is the God of Scripture, who is Yahweh, the second person of the Trinity, if you haven't trusted Him, this is the time to do it, because these plagues will happen, and they're only going to happen to the people who are on earth who have refused to believe the Son. Join us next week as we begin Revelation chapter 10. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com. Music